Hey there. Glad to have you back listening to the American History Experience. Today's episode is entitled The Development of the Far West. And what we're going to see here today is industrialization reshape the future states of Arizona, New Mexico, Oregon, Washington, and especially California. Just like the development of the Great Plains, so much of the development of the Far West comes down to one point. Railroads. Once that Central Pacific line was complete, Americans in the East had access to all these great products that were produced out in the West. And even maybe more importantly, um, manufacturers in the East had a new market to sell their products. But just like the last time, it'd be a mistake to assume that this progress that we're talking about did not come without any cost. You'll see what I mean in just a minute, but for right now, I hope you enjoy. Just like it was agriculture that put the Great Plains on the map, it was the mining industry that brought the Far West economy into the national economy. I'm willing to bet that many of you know that the year 1848 is a really important year in the history of California. It's in that year that flakes of gold were discovered in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. And it's in the following year that just an absolute flood of prospectors, people hoping to get rich off of uh, the gold rush, rush into the territory to try to make their fortunes. You can't understand what's going on in California unless you understand some of the backstory that brought us to 1848. Again, as many of you are probably aware, once upon a time, California was a part of northern Mexico. And the U.S. had gone to war with Mexico in 1846, and a couple years down the road, the war is going to end. We'll talk about some of the other ramifications of this conflict here in just a second. But for the time being, understand that Mexico is going to give up a sizable portion of its northern frontier to the United States, including California. You have to understand how this was seen by the U.S. government as opposed to how it's seen by the general rank and file of Americans at this particular moment. Now, as far as the U.S. was concerned, the government that is, um, those people that had, uh, you know, yesterday called themselves Mexicanos, ne Mexican nationals, they would become U.S. citizens with full rights and full privileges under the U.S. Constitution, including the protection of their property. However, for people back in the East, people that wanted to go out West and get rich, uh, it was seen as open season on what had been formerly Mexican territory. So you see these prospectors rushing out into California and they're literally staking their claim. They are literally just, you know, posting uh, properties and saying that this is my plot and to stay off of my plot. In some cases, they're illegally occupying those territories, a thing that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. For right now, again, you can't understand the development of California if you don't discuss a little bit of the role that the railroad played within it. Just like everything else, whether we're talking about manufacturing in the east or the extraction of resources in the south or agriculture, cattle ranching in the uh, Great Plains, uh, none of this mining industry would have been possible had it not been for the railroads. It's those railroads that are bringing those prospectors into this rural frontier so that they can extract these natural resources, including gold, and then send them back to places where they might be refined into consumer goods. 
But these early 49ers were really not equipped to really get at the main deposits of gold. Don't get me wrong, that's exactly what they were looking for. But the bottom line was, at best, they were able to kind of skim the surface. If you have ever seen photographs from this time period in uh, American history, you'll see these, uh, you know, these rough and tumble looking miners with a pan and they're standing in this river in this creek and they're hoping that the current of the river will dislodge a gold nugget and it ends up in their pan. If you really think about how you get at the main deposits of that gold, you're gonna have to dig down deep into the earth. It's gonna require a lot of people. It's gonna require a lot of technology. And most importantly of all, it's gonna require a lot of money. So over the course of time, these prospectors that have been brought by the railroad and have landed in California, eventually they're going to sell out to these large corporations and you're going to see a corporate takeover of the mining industry. Huge companies were better equipped to get at the main deposits of these gold. And as these companies' men were looking for gold, they also discovered things like oil, things like coal copper and silver and all of these commodities were highly valued back in the east now let me spend just a second on the people that are going to make up the workforces uh, of these companies including railroads just like we discovered back in the east industrialization in the west would not have been possible had it not been for massive waves of immigration we're going to see Americans from the East, from places like New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, flood into the West upon this gold rush. But you're also going to see thousands of people coming from places like Ireland, Italy, Mexico, and especially China. And in time, these immigrants were going to make California one of the most diverse states in the nation. But for the time being, we need to discuss how it was even possible to build a mining metropolis like that of San Francisco. The last time we met, I introduced you to this uh, concept of Oregon fever and how in the 1840s, everybody was wanting to go out to what was coming to be known as Oregon country to cash in on this arable farmland. We had had these glowing reports and everybody wanted to take advantage of that valuable farmland out there in the Pacific Northwest. Now, California was known, but it was something that largely most Americans tried to avoid when it came to emigration out to the West Coast. It's really incredible how quickly everyone changes their tune once gold is discovered. Um, every emphasis had been placed on Oregon country and then almost like a snap of a finger later, everybody's going out to California trying to get rich on the gold rush. And in the process, San Francisco goes from this sleepy little outpost trading town to a massive metropolis almost overnight. But as it turns out, had it not been for the Pacific Slope, San Francisco never would have been possible in the first place. Now let me make, have you understand exactly what I mean when I say Pacific Slope. I mean those future states of Oregon and Washington State because it's in those regions that we're seeing the supply of lumber, the supply of fish, the supply of cattle, the supply of wheat, the supply of raw materials that will be used to create what you think of as San Francisco, California generally speaking. But once again, this whole promise of California as being this uh, 
place of uh, opportunity, this land of opportunity, is premised on the idea that nobody is living there, that it's basically barren territory. Well, just like what we saw with uh, the Great Plains, that's, that's just not the case. Let me take you back to this war with Mexico here for a second. The treaty that is going to end this war is known as the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And basically what it does is it forces Mexico to give up its northern territories, including California, but a sizable chunk of what we now call the U.S. Southwest. What Mexico is really concerned about, and you really, you, you, this isn't obvious here, but I'll say it anyway, they're worried about what those, what's going to happen to those people that called themselves Mexican nationals yesterday. What do you intend on doing to them, with them, after you take over? And one of the things that the treaty sets out or lays out is the fact that if they stayed put for one year, if they didn't move for one year, they would become U.S. citizens. And as U.S. citizens, they would have equal protection under the law, including the right to take someone to court for the purposes of a lawsuit. What does that have to do with anything? Well, let me take you back to that uh, misunderstanding between the American government and the American people. As I said before, many Americans see California um, as open terrain, a place to just go and stake your claim whenever you feel like it. Obviously, that's not exactly consistent with the uh, outlining in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. But when some of these prospectors come out to the Southwest, and it's not just California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada as well, and they start claiming their, their stakes, the only real way to evict them is to take them to court. Now, I hope that you never have had the misfortune of being sued or having to be in court for a long period of time, but if you have, you can tell me that there's absolutely nothing cheap about that process. It's very, very expensive. Now, these people of the Mexicano variety, people that were, you know, Mexican citizens uh, yesterday, now they're Americans uh, the, 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 the following day, they're rich in the sense that they own a lot of land, but it's not as if they're rich as if they have bricks of $20 bills stacked in their kitchen cabinets. It's going to cost them a lot of money to take these uh, uh, squatters to court and some of the only ways that these uh, landowners have to settle their legal debts is to parcel out their land. What I'm getting at here is a lot of these rich people are paying their legal fees, their lawyer fees, not with cold hard cash, but with land allotments. And ultimately what you're going to see is the erosion of a Mexican-American land-owning class. Whether by hook or by crook, the land is going to transition away from the Mexicano population and into the hands of large corporations, railroads, uh, logging companies, uh, construction companies, uh, other big economic interests that are very much in the business of uh, employing cheap labor. And because many of these former landowners were either agriculturalists or ranchers, there's really nothing that they are able to do other than to uh, sell their labor in the labor market 
once they've parceled out their land. And so once again, what you're seeing here is the development of inequality. It's a little bit different than what we were talking about on the plains with the uh, war with the Sioux Nation, but nonetheless, you're seeing the development of institutionalized inequality, and much of it is based on race. This erosion of a Mexican-American land-owning class is going to contribute greatly to uh, the inequality that we're going to see emerge in the southwestern part of the United States. And this isn't the only place or context that we're going to see the emergence of Western inequality. The process of immigration to the West is going to present new questions involving American freedom and American equality. Just like we discussed how immigration went hand in hand with industrialization in the East, uh, whether you're talking about New York or elsewhere, immigration is going to come to the West when industrialization begins to change the game in the Western part of North America. These immigrant groups, however, are going to be very different uh, than the groups that we've been talking about thus far in this series you're going to see a massive wave of immigration from Latin America, and it's primarily going to be Mexico. You're also going to see some immigration from Asia, especially when it comes to China. Let me start out with Latin America right now. What's going on in the late 19th century in Mexico especially is the Mexican Revolution. And it is an especially bloody conflict. And, um, you know, it, it's really, if you dig down deep enough, you'll find that the violence is right there on par with the Russian experience in World War II. So it's a very, very violent affair. And there are a lot of people that are trying to escape the bloodshed. Simultaneously, you've got a stagnation in the Mexican economy. If you read about this time period in Mexican economic history, um, you'll know that the economy never really recovers, not, not really anyway, uh, doesn't recover from that war with the United States about 50 years earlier, the U.S.-Mexican War. So if you do the math, you've got violence and people trying to escape the violence, and you also have economic refugees. And, you know, the one place that was hiring or the closest place that was hiring was the United States. The entry point that these Latin American citizens uh, are going to enter through, that, that would be El Paso. Now, once again, we are predominantly talking about Mexican immigrants. However, others that are immigrating from throughout that region are going through Mexico and into El Paso uh, when it comes to their port of entry. Now, we have talked about how traumatizing the process of in immigration could be, so I'm not really going to belabor that point right here, but what I will say is there's an even heavier hand of racism that's at work when it comes to the process in El Paso. There were assumptions that were made about these people that were coming through uh, uh, El Paso, coming out of Latin America, and that there, there were measures that were taken, um, especially involving sanitation measures that were taken, that we really didn't discuss when we were discussing uh, the process over there in Ellis Island in New York. In any case, 
once these immigrants had uh, completed the immigration process in El Paso, they then fanned out and they were hired by a myriad of different industries. Everything from mining companies to railroad companies to, you know, agricultural companies. Uh, this labor was absolutely essential to the development of uh, the western part of what would become known as the United States. Let's transition this conversation to Asian immigration. Now, the two main countries that are sending immigrants by the thousands to the United States, that would be Japan, and to a much greater extent, that would be China. In Japan, you've got a modernizing economy that's pushing people off the land. It's pushing people out of jobs. And just like we were talking about when we were discussing the Italians in the East, a lot of these people are forced to seek greener pastures elsewhere. And it turns out that elsewhere was Southern California. More of that here in just a second. For the time being, let's turn our attention to the Chinese. A combination of war and famine were pushing people out of China, especially southeastern China. Uh, massive flooding of the Guangdong province uh, is really going to create a crisis when it comes to a food shortage, and a lot of these people are going to be forced out of the country. Many of these individuals, not exclusively, but I would say the vast majority of them, are really coming from a rural, from a, a working class background. So we're not exactly talking about people that have a lot of access to education. We're talking about working class uh, immigrants that will be absorbed by the bigger, broader industry. While they were still in China, um, the Chinese referred to California as Gold Mountain. And the assumption was that everybody was getting rich in Gold Mountain, that the streets were paved with gold. Um, that turned out to be not the case, uh, and you'll see what I'm talking about here in just a second. But for the time being, understand that like all of the other immigrant groups that we've talked about so far in this process, the immigration uh, experience for the Chinese was nothing short of traumatic. Uh, instead of Southern California, most of the Chinese entered the United States through San Francisco. And in particular, they were processed off the coast of California at this place known as Angel Island. Now, we, we've talked about Ellis Island enough, and I know that you know that it was a very traumatic experience, but I would say that the experience was even more intense in Angel Island. There were all these different assumptions, negative assumptions, and most of them, if not all of them, were false, that came to characterize these Chinese immigrants. That they were hedonistic, that they ate rats, that they had very unsanitary, you know, habits. The, the list could go on and on and on. But for the good of the order, the questions that were asked at Angel Island were, were even more in your face uh, and, and, and intimidating. And so you better know the answers to these questions before you even set sail for California. One of the things that some of these Chinese immigrants would do on their way from China to San Francisco is they would study these letters that had been sent back home uh, from California to China. And they would memorize neighborhoods. They, they would memorize streets of neighborhoods. And they would memorize employers that tended to employ a lot of Chinese workers. They would memorize, you know, shops and uh, other areas that were very, very important to the Chinese uh, community in, in, in San Francisco, the United States, generally speaking. What these individuals came to be known over the course of time 
are the paper sons. They had an identity, but it was paper thin. When they arrived at Angel Island, keep in mind there were some very intimidating questions that were being asked of them, and if you didn't know the answer, you're far more likely to be sent back as opposed to the experience in the East in Ellis Island. So these individuals were very, very well rehearsed. They knew their new identity like the back of their hand because they had studied it day after day on the ride over from China to San Francisco. But for right now, let's, let's get back to Gold Mountain. Throughout the course of the 1850s and 60s, uh, California is going to attract thousands and thousands of Chinese immigrants. And uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, many of them are going to land in San Francisco, but they soon fanned out crossing the Sierra Nevada mountains, and then they began to meet the burgeoning transcontinental railroad. At this particular moment, the construction of the Central Pacific Railroad had been stalled due to a lack of workers. One official within the company, a guy by the name of Charles Calker, uh, suggested that they hire these Chinese to help get construction up and running again. Now, at first, Calker's idea was met with a lot of scorn. A lot of people just scoffed at it, claiming that the Chinese uh, were, were too slight for railroad construction and they were not fit for handling blasting powder. But it was Calker who reminded his critics that it was the Chinese who had built the Great Wall and they had basically invented gunpowder. Had it not been for dynamite and explosives, there would have been no way to blast through the western mountain ranges to complete this project and so therefore, you know, having an understanding of how this whole thing works was really, really important. In the end, Calker's going to win out and uh, 50 Chinese laborers were hired and, and history was made in the process. They proved to be a great success and, th and soon thousands and thousands more Chinese workers were hired. But the work, the, the work was absolutely grueling. Chinese took great pride in their work. Later generations would, would grow up hearing that your grandfather made that railroad, your grandfather constructed that railroad, took a lot of pride in it. But at the time, it was performed almost exclusively by hand. Pickaxes, shovels, hammers, crowbars, they chipped out lines bit by bit. Tree stumps had to be rooted out, and again, you're doing this all by hand. Tracks were laid by hand, and on a good day, you, you maybe hit 10 miles of track. It's just about putting one foot in front of the other day after day after day. Now, the Chinese themselves were in this very, very dangerous working condition. Now, I know you know what I'm talking about because many of you are knee-deep in the jungle, so you know that working conditions throughout the late 19th century were precarious in and of themselves. But when it comes to blasting through the mountains, you would have Chinese workers that would be lowered over cliffs in these little baskets, and they were supposed to place sticks of dynamites into you know, strategically located parts of the mountain, and then another man at the top of the cliff would have to wheel that person out of there very, very fast, get the basket out of there. Um, otherwise, the explosive is gonna detonate and the guy in the basket's gonna be blown away. So you can see that these are really, really dangerous working conditions. But at one point, more than 90% of the Central Pacific's workforce consisted of Chinese Americans, and they played a major part in creating this economic infrastructure that would eventually connect the West to the East, and in the process, completely reinvent the American economy, and I mean that in a good way. 
Now, these Chinese were also the subject of much derision and xenophobia. Racism, ethnic prejudice, religious prejudice, xenophobia broadly defined was simply a part of the uh, immigration experience throughout American history. Now as that job market is going to tighten due to an economic downturn that's really going to begin in the 1870s and it'll get better at times and then it'll go back to being worse at other times. What you're going to see is a native-born backlash that's going to ensue, and a lot of that backlash is xenophobic in its orientation, and a lot of that xenophobia was aimed at the Chinese. The Working Man's Party um, was a political organization that had actually emerged in the United States much earlier in the 19th century. It was largely a part of that populist political upheaval that's really beginning to redefine politics in the 1830s. But by the 1870s, at least in California, it was very clearly an anti-Chinese organization. Now, the WPC, as it came to be known, was never really in a position to win elections. I mean, it just wasn't big enough, and for good, better, or worse, the United States has always been a two-party monopoly when it comes to our political system. Although the WPC uh, was never really a serious contender for any election, it certainly could influence elections. So by 1880, it really didn't matter if you were a Democrat or a Republican. You couldn't get elected dog catcher unless you at least paid lip service to putting an end to Chinese immigration. Um, the thought here is relatively simple. Um, it's, it's misguided and wrong, but it's simple. If we didn't have all these Chinese immigrants, if we put an end to Chinese immigration, the economy is going to come roaring back. And, you know, obviously that's not the case, but that is the prevailing mindset in many, many circles, especially in California in the late 19th century. So there's a ton of political pressure that's put on both Democrats and Republicans, and this is going to manifest itself in 1882 in one of the nastiest, ugliest, most racist laws in American history, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now what the Chinese Exclusion Act is going to do, 1882 and thereafter, is it's basically going to end immigration from China. There were a few exceptions, but these were, you know, very wealthy people that could find workarounds to some of these discriminatory provisions. They were businessmen, uh, many of them were students, some of them were political ambassadors, but for the, 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 the vast majority of people from China who had been coming up until that point, this country is essentially off limits. This is probably the first time in American history that we actually told another country, your kind are just simply not welcome in, in our country. But you gotta ask yourself, um, what do you do with those Chinese Amer Americans that are already here? W what do you do with people that have immigrated from China, they've been here for a few years, what do you do with them? And the answer is you relegate them to second-class citizenship, okay? If you have ever been to a Chinatown, and I don't care if this is New York or San Francisco or anywhere in between, 
my guess is you probably did two things, at least two things. My, my guess is number one, you probably went shopping and don't feel bad because every time I go to a Chinatown, that's exactly what I do too. And the other thing that you probably did is you had lunch, you had dinner. In other words, you were a tourist. So we've got a very romanticized understanding of what Chinatown was in American history or is, was. But what it was in San Francisco in the late 19th century was really the only place in all of the city that the Chinese were even allowed to exist. Now make no mistake about it, some of these businessmen from China are coming over and they're, they're having great success, but it's not as if they were allowed to just buy a house, buy property in, in the nicest of San Francisco neighborhoods. It's essentially Jim Crow on the West Coast. Um, it, it is a it is an unwritten rule that Chinese can only exist in certain parts of American life, and that's really what I'm talking about when I say second-class citizenship. Open discrimination, um, there's certain things that you just can't do if you happen to be of Chinese ancestry. But a more critical question at the time is going to come in, in the form of who's going to do the work? You know, the Chinese, as as we've outlined here just a few minutes ago, were, were performing this really critical element of, of laying some infrastructure, uh, mining, and that's to say nothing of the railroad construction. Where are we going to get these immigrants from? And the original answer is largely going to be the Japanese. The Japanese will continue to come to the United States prim primarily because uh, unlike China, Japan is rapidly becoming a first world country. And basically what it, what, what it says to the United States is you're not going to do the same thing that you've done to the Chinese. You're not going to make us the laughing stock of the world. There will be no Japanese Exclusion Act. Many of these individuals of the Japanese immigrant variety are, are going to find not only work, but also some success, a lot of success actually, in some of these specialty crops, not, not really in San Francisco where the Chinese were, but in Southern California. Southern California is one of the industries that's really going to put it on the map would be agriculture. And I know you generally don't think of agriculture when you think of Southern California, but because its climate is so unique and it's, you know, it, it's got, it's got a, a topography that really you don't see it anywhere else in North America. There are some specialty crops that are going to be very, very important to California's overall economy. Think about things like raisins, uh, almonds, other nuts as well, peaches, various forms of citrus fruits, and of course that says nothing about the, uh, the, the, the wine industry. But what all of these crops had in common was that they were they, they required back-breaking work. And of course, just like we found out with the railroad construction, this wasn't going to be native-born middle-class Americans that were going to do this. It was largely going to be done by immigrants. But over the course of time, the same thing that happened to the Chinese is basically going to happen to the Japanese, but it'll be a little bit more covert. Eventually, what you're going to see is a gentleman's agreement in California that's pretty much going to emphasize the idea that you do not hire, you do not employ Japanese Americans. It's just 
too, you know, problematic for business. It was seen as, you know, something that uh, good patriotic Americans didn't do, primarily for racist reasons. But you see what I'm talking about. So what I want you to understand here, and and, and everything that we do in this series is going to be very cause and effect in its dynamic. But by the, the turn of the 20th century, you have an unmistakable, undeniable anti-Asian sentiment that has really taken hard shape um, in, in, in California, but really throughout the, the entire West. And so when we get blindsided in 1941 by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, I, I don't want it to come as a surprise to you that uh, when there's pressure put on the president to do something about uh, potential traitors, potential uh, spies that had handed over top secret information to the Japanese empire, um, that the president responds with an executive order that uh, rounds up Japanese Americans and puts them into uh, relocation camps, internment camps. That's really what I'm talking about. So, once again, we're, we're, we're left with this question. Um, you've got progress coming to the West, but is this progress free? Is there someone that's paying for this progress? And I think absolutely yes. The answer is absolutely yes. It was cheap labor that built this uh, nation's infrastructure, as we've seen here today. Um, but that labor wasn't cheap for those people that were performing those jobs. It was dangerous jobs. People died in doing those jobs. It wasn't exactly so cheap for them. It also wasn't so cheap on the environment. Um, there's an environmental cost that's really going to be borne out during this process. And uh, although there's not too many people that are really super concerned about it, uh, John Muir is an exception. Now, who is John Muir? He is an academic. Um, he's a botanist. Uh, he, he's a guy that understands how Mother Nature works. And as such, he also understands that, you know, this industrialization, this quote unquote progress may very well be doing irreparable damage to one of the most sophisticated and one of the most unique climates and environments anywhere in the world. We might not have an opportunity to get this back. So when it comes to understanding John Muir, I got an easy way to remember him. And if you look up a picture of him, you'll understand exactly what I mean. He's sort of America's first tree-hugging hippie. And again, if you look him up, you'll, you'll see what I'm, I'm talking about because he kind of looks like a hippie. In any case, what I also need you to understand about John Muir is that he's, he's really the father of the national park system. Now, he's going to have to wait to get a friendly ear in the White House before that's going to happen. But basically, he's going to write letters and he's going to write um, other studies, basically, that is going to put pressure on the political system. And ultimately, where he's going with this is he wants protectionism. He wants the government to step in and say, I don't care how much money you can make by blasting apart this mountain. Don't care how much money you can make by hacking down this forest or insert example here, the bottom line is you will not be allowed to do this. We're not going to see you do this. He wants the government to step in and protect the economy way, way ahead of his time, if you understand what I'm talking about. But because of the work of John Muir, uh, eventually you will have uh, parks like Yosemite and Sequoia, Grant Park, and other 
preserves where, you know, the federal government eventually did step in and say, this land will be off limits to industrialization. Now, I'd love to sit here and tell you that John Muir fought the good fight and, um, you know, this is, uh, he was able to put industry in his place. But as we saw on the plains and as we saw earlier in this episode today, um, anytime you got this amount of economic horsepower behind something, it generally does tend to win out. Thanks for joining us here today. As you can see, the development of the West not only enhanced the American economy, providing it with an abundance of resources, but also dramatically altered the social and political landscape of American society at the same time. This development did not come without cost, however. Whenever and wherever an indigenous population threatened um, expansion or economic growth, they were promptly removed and cast aside in the name of uh, progress. So I hope that you'll have an opportunity to, uh, to join us for the next episode, which is entitled American Politics in Crisis. If you do, you'll see the fallout that is brought by this rapid industrialization. In essence, this is going to come to be known as political populism. But for right now, I hope you're well. <laughs>